0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Locked In Science. This is 30 Minutes of Science on your radio in 2020, which is a very different year. It means we're not in the studio. We are not so much locked in our own houses, but certainly broadcasting from our own houses. My name is Claire, and uh, this week on Locked in Science, I, I am going to talk about something that's close to all of our hearts, but mostly Stu's heart, which is plant health. As for all regular listeners know... 2020 is the, also the International Year of Plant Health, and it got me thinking: What about ocean plant health, also known as seagrasses? Probably more often than not, left off left off the list when we think about plant health. Would you agree, Stu?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, people sort of think about plants on the land, and that's very important. They think about things like seaweed. And they think that, you know, there's there's obviously important ecological functions of seaweed. But the seagrasses are actually really important series of ecosystems throughout the world. Support all sorts of oh, um, marine 100%. life. Yes. Yeah, it's yes. pretty amazing.
0: Heads up, Stu. I am going to quiz you on the difference between a seagrass and a seaweed later in the show. So, um, yeah, do your necessary Googling before we get to that okay <laughs> okay okay, okay, um, okay great
1: uh, i can i can tell you now uh, that i already know okay. why <laughs> why the um yeah but I, I i will i will have google at the ready for the tough questions okay
0: great excellent as looked in science as resident horticultural scientist then i do expect you to know these things um anyway what do you have for us today Stu
1: well as you also know one of my other fields of study has been fungi oh, and of course yes yeah so i'm actually looking at using a particular kind of fungus in particular a yeast to improve the delivery of antibiotics in human patients potentially Whoa. so yeah like it's it's a real it's a real sort of jump sideways in In treatment of uh, of infections, but um, it was a really interesting paper that I came across um, that was looking at the use of yeast in that way, and uh, yeah, I was going to have a look at exactly. Why they why they need to do that and uh, and how it's going to work?
0: I mean that's an extremely novel way to approach the um, that sort of problem. So I can't wait to hear all about it. And before we head into the stories, I thought we should briefly mention the latest that has come out about the COVID nineteen vaccine candidates around the world because there has been some big news this week. First up, the most recent news of the Oxford vaccine. So, researchers have just released late-stage trial results that the vaccine stops around seventy percent of people developing COVID nineteen symptoms. And depending on how it is taken, this number can uh, this number actually increases to ninety percent of people. So, this trial has been done with around twenty thousand people from around the world and there have been no serious side effects reported. Now, people would be familiar with this vaccine, as Australia has a deal to start producing 30 million doses of it, once approved by regulators. The thing that sets this vaccine apart from the others is that it doesn't require super low temperatures for storage. So, when you think about it, a much better option for transportation to really remote locations around the world um, and and a lot better for developing countries. It's also a lot cheaper to produce, which is fantastic. It means a lot more people are going to be able to access it. Um, now, one of the other vaccine results that's been giving hope is the Moderna vaccine. So this has just been announced um, and it is a vaccine that has a 95% efficacy so um, got me thinking about what this really means um, and the way that researchers work this out is in their trial of you know thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people that take this vaccine, around 95 participants in the trial ended up developing COVID-19. And of these 95 people, 90 of them were in the group that received a placebo injection. And five of them received the vaccine. So that's how you work out the efficacy. How many people who um, in that group who get the virus and then how many of them, um, you know, belong to the placebo group and how many belong to the vaccine group. So this gives you around a 94.5% efficacy. And the final vaccine candidate that's uh, released results this week is the Pfizer vaccine from New York, uh, which is another very exciting one as well, with promising results from stage three human trials of over 90% efficacy as well. So that one um, and the Moderna one, they both require really low temperatures to keep them viable around the world um, and are a little bit more expensive than the Oxford vaccine. So, woohoo, three vaccine candidates. What a relief. Obviously, there's a long way to go and researchers need to identify whether these vaccines are protecting against the severe cases of COVID-19 as well as the mild cases. But let's just say it is pretty exciting um, the thought that there could be three vaccine candidates for 2021. Okay, on with the show.
1: As far as human health problems this year, the focus has obviously been on a particular virus. You might have heard people mention it on the news if you've been awake at any time in the last 11 (laughs) months or so. And, look, with news of various vaccines being effective in preventing that particular infection, things in that area might start looking more hopeful Mm. as as we move into... The new year, but obviously all the other health problems that people deal with have not gone away. Uh, and while some things have been less of a problem this year because of lockdown precautions, um, you know, certain illnesses, fl- influenza was was lower than than usual, much lower than usual. In fact, because of those um, precautions we were taking, but for for other illnesses, it's been pretty much business as usual. So we have talked a lot about antibiotics on the show in the past Um, and they were one of the biggest medical breakthroughs of the 20th century but there's obviously some problems associated with them too and despite the fact that antibiotics are used to treat a huge number of infectious uh, diseases um, they have also been a victim of their own success in that people have somewhat overuse them over prescribed them people have used them incorrectly and we've let which has led to uh you know an issue with uh bacterial resistance so there's there's a bit of a minor crisis in the use of antibiotics in that we can't really uh, rely on them against some infections so the thing about Bacteria is that they react to the selection pressure that the antibiotics introduce by evolving to become resistant to particular antibiotic treatments, which then makes those antibiotics not very useful um, or less useful, should we say. Uh, One of the other problems with antibiotics is that patients can become susceptible to reinfection by other bacterial pathogens because of the lack of competition from other Mm. bacteria. So when you're a healthy person, you're basically covered inside and out with hundreds of different bacteria all over your body, all inside your body. And when you take an antibiotic treatment, it is often not a very directed treatment, so it just right. wipe out a, a large range of bacteria, it's, which means
0: um, quite broad spectrum. Would you say
1: that's that's correct? And what happens then is there is a basically a vacuum Mm. and nature abhors a vacuum, as we've all learned, (laughs) I'm sure, and other bacteria can come back in. And if those are bad bacteria, the lack of competition means they just take over and that person can get reinfected.
0: It reminds me of when I, um, you know, take out all my winter plant, leave my garden in fallow for a little while, a whole bunch of seeds from weeds just pop up and populate it. You know, they just take advantage of the system of the situation.
1: Well, that's, that's a pretty good um, analogy, really, because they're using all the available sunlight and all the available water and all of the available nutrients. That's exactly what the bacteria are doing. They're using all of the resources that are available and there's no one competing. So they breed up in big numbers very quickly. So that lack of competition leads to reinfections from other things. One example of this is a bacteria called Clostridioides difficile which causes recurring infections, particularly in elderly patients, often after they've had treatment with antibiotics for a different infection. So they get treated for an infection, that original infection goes away, but then they get this uh, Clostridioides difficile infecting them because of uh, the antibiotic. So this particular bacteria infects the colon, and patients often have resurgences of infection one after another, which weakens them mm. over time, and can even be fatal if they if it doesn't clear up. So we've mentioned on the show fecal transplants as well. Yeah, um, transposions. I think they've been referred to. <laughs> I've never um, heard
0: that, but I love it.
1: Uh, so so fecal transplants have been shown to be partly effective in overcoming the side effects of antibiotics by replacing the lost flora of the colon and reducing that vacuum effect of the um the antibiotics Um, but they are still quite a, a risky procedure so they're you know they're not cheap enough or safe enough to carry out every time someone has a course of antibiotics so scientists have been looking for simpler alternatives And in a paper published late last month, in October, scientists have deployed a completely different approach using specially modified yeast to deliver a dose of antibodies that can kill off the bacteria. So using mice, they introduced a species of yeast which is harmless to humans and to mice, which has been modified to produce monoclonal antibodies that counteract the toxins made by the bacteria so it's actually the toxins themselves that cause the illness in in the people who are infected
0: monoclonal antibodies i feel like we've heard that term quite recently as a experimental treatment for covid19 that trump was using
1: There there was a whole range of uh, potential treatments. The, The thing about monoclonal antibodies is that they're usually delivered as a medicine. In this case, they're actually getting the yeast to make the antibodies. Wow. So they introduce the yeast into the person's body and the yeast continues to live and produce these monoclonal antibodies. So it's an ongoing treatment for a chronic condition which... Um, they don't need to keep getting, uh, they they don't need to keep reintroducing the yeast into the, into their body.
0: So is this, um, a yeast that's been modified by something like CRISPR?
1: Uh, I'm not sure the exact method they use, but they did modify, you know, the genetics of this yeast, uh, in order to, um, to get it to produce these different enzymes and proteins that, that go into the, um, into making those monoclonal antibodies, the benefit that the researchers say of using the yeast to deliver the antibodies is of course, that it can keep producing the antibodies. It survives or has survived in the gut of the mice and it will keep going and keep Mm. producing these antibodies after the bacteria have disappeared completely. Wow. So, um, it's sort of a double treatment. Um, they, they sort of get rid of the bacteria and get rid of the toxins at the same time by using the antibodies. Um, The antibodies worked so well in the mice, they showed no damage to their intestinal lining, which would be expected uh, in a normal infection with this pathogenic bacteria. So they didn't see the usual damage they would expect to see as a result of the infection because the antibodies worked so well.
0: It's really promising.
1: Um, It is really promising. Now, even though the yeast is considered safe for humans, because it's been modified it will obviously take years oh, some years for approvals for trials in human patients but i think even though you know even though it may be a long way off at the very least <laughs> it's another potential alternative to traditional antibiotics and possibly a new way to approach bacterial pathogen treatment in the future <laughs>
0: So, Stu, 2020 has been a bit much, um, but as regular listeners would know, it is also 2020, the year of, well, the international year of plant health. You know, something, something good to celebrate. I feel like I've probably left you to do most of the plant health stories this year. So I'm just catching up now.
1: Oh look that's fine you've You've seen a lot more of the plants than I have this year, so it's about time you did a story on them. I think
0: yeah, one thing we really haven't talked about in relation to plants is um plants of the sea sea plants um so I thought i'd I'd start off with just a bit of investigating, just a bit of a curiosity, you know deep dive slash jump down that rabbit hole and see where it takes me and that's what that's what I did, so <laughs> first thing I wanted to do. And I flagged this with you at the start of the show. Is what is the difference between a sea grass and a seaweed?
1: Well, I think the basic the basic difference is that seaweeds are forms of algae, uh, which are very primitive plants that yep. have you know some of the first green plants on yeah. Earth, and in fact the algae are quite separate to what we consider land plants. Yeah. And the seagrasses basically evolved on the land and then moved back into the ocean.
0: That's right. They're like the whales of the plant world, right?
1: The the cetaceans of the sea of the of, <laughs> like, of the plant world. Yeah.
0: They're like the cetaceans <laughs> of the plant kingdom. Exactly what you said. Seaweeds are multicellular algae. They don't have uh, vascular tissues and that sort of thing. Sea grasses are the evolutionary relatives of terrestrial plants that we know, that we love, that we eat, that gives us oxygen and all the rest. So they really differ in many, many ways. Reproduction, structure, how they transport the nutrients and, and dissolve gases in the ocean. And as you said, technically, seaweed is not a plant. It is an algae. So, first thing to do, um, as it's international plant health, I think it's only fair that we talk about seagrass and not seaweeds. Okay, so just cross seaweed off the list. We're talking about seagrass. I mean, you know, the
1: the epic kelp forests and all that sort of stuff are very important and the microscopic algae in the oceans actually make most of the oxygen in the atmosphere, but... (laughs) <laughs> We've also got to give credit where credit's due to the seagrass. That's grasses.
0: right. That's right. And they are incredible in their own right. They've existed since around the time of the dinosaurs. Um, they have, yeah, and like you said before, they are relatives um, of the plants that we see around here. So they have things like roots, they have leaves, they have underground stems called rhizomes that hold the plants in place. So they're very similar to what we understand a plant being like. And like plants, they use those roots and rhizomes to extract nutrients from, um, you know, the mud or the sand or you know whatever sediment they're on. And they use their leaves for extracting nutrients from the water. Um, they also are photosynthetic and they have a vascular network. So if you remember back to year 9 biology class and your xylem and your phloem vessels, Um, That's what they have. So that's how they transport their nutrients and their sugars and all the rest of it. Now, as you alluded to, they play a hugely important role in the ecosystem. Around the world there's over 300,000 square kilometres of the world's ocean floors that are matted in seagrass. They are along every continent except Antarctica. And it's been estimated that seagrasses may perform up to – 18% 18% of the ocean's carbon sequestration, even though they only cover 0.1% of the ocean floor. So, they so do they're, a- basically,
1: they're basically doing a much better job of carbon sequestration than yep. than, the, than the old seaweed.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're doing a bang-up job. Well done, seagrass. And it's it, it's incredible, you know, how they've survived for so long, um, given there are so many sort of like, you know, things now that, that are threatening them, but not just as a species, but they, so they, they exist as clones for thousands of years. So a lot of, there are a lot of seagrasses out there that are sort of like clonal replications of one another. Um, there's one seagrass meadow of the species, Posidonia oceanica, and that's in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this is a clone um of one plant, and it's it's the largest clonal sort of like meadow of seagrass It stretches around twelve kilometers so they are estimating they' being scientists estimating that it's been growing for potentially two hundred thousand years
1: <laughs> as as a clone
0: as a clone, yeah,
1: wow, yeah, so That's...
0: potentially the oldest known organism on earth
1: so does that mean does that mean there's no sexual reproduction in that in that meadow?
0: Oh, uh, that is a very good question. I'm not quite sure about that, but it does segue perfectly into the next thing I want to tell you about, which is that not all sea grasses reproduce asexually like that. They actually reproduce sexually as well. So they have seagrass plants have separate sexes. They produce flowers and fruits and seeds. So... so- they're, yeah. they're
1: flowering plants.
0: They are flowering plants, which totally yeah. blew my mind because that brought me to the next question: If they have flowers, does that mean they're pollinated by some sort of sea bee?
1: <laughs> and did did you find out if there was a sea bee?
0: <laughs> I did find out, and up until a couple of years ago, the answer is no. Ah. Up, up until recently, it was widely thought that um, so seagrass pollen was, only used the ocean currents and tides to randomly pollinate their flowers and reproduce. But around five years ago or so, Mexican researchers figured out that a specific type of seagrass, it's called turtle grass, in, is being pollinated by visiting invertebrates, <laughs> the sea bees,
1: So there really are sea bees. There
0: really are sea bees. Wow. Um, So you can see, just like pollen on the legs of bees, the seagrass pollen grains can hitch a ride on the tiny marine creatures. And then these little underwater invertebrates, they ferry pollen between flowers in the same way that bees and other animals pollinate plants on land. Um,
1: so so they're, the res- they're kind of they're, they're kind of really just behaving the same way that insects do on land, except they don't have yeah. to fly. They can just swim around.
0: They can just swim around, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and researchers tested the theory in the lab, so they added crustacean, you know, CB containing seawater to a laboratory aquarium with male and female turtle grass flowers, some of which had pollen grains, and then within fifteen minutes they found extra pollen on, um, on the female blooms, whereas in the control tanks there wasn't any extra pollen. So they can tell in sort of, you know, experimental conditions that pollination and sort of like extra pollination can happen um, and will happen when you've got these sea um, bees getting around.
1: So it's, it's it's an active pollination process, yeah. not not just a not just a random, yeah. you know, water pollinated yeah. arrangement. Exactly. Mm.
0: So they haven't taken into account, you know, um, uh, water movement here. So what they showed is when there is no water movement, there was sex, su- successful pollination of the sea grass flowers by the sea bees, but you know it, they they haven't tried out. They haven't really tested it in situ, and what happens when you've you've got you know tides and ocean currents and whatnot, um, and how much pollination is actually happening um, in the real world. Anyway, yes, yeah, so it's sort of blew my mind the idea that we, you've got sea bees happening, um, you know, going around and pollinating little little flowers on sea grasses, and presumably the drive for the invertebrates and why they do this is probably the same as bees. So the pollinators you know, the little invertebrate crustaceans are probably attracted to their delicious pollen um, and then some sticks to their bodies and is later deposited when they visit a female flower. Now, like I said, it's just one species of seagrass um, and it's CB invertebrate. Uh, Certainly more research needs to be done before we know a little bit more about this. But it's definitely made me think about how much more there is to know about our world's plant life, um, especially underwater. that's all we have time for on another episode of locked in science we hope you are staying safe wherever you are across australia locked in science is normally recorded in the studios of 3cr on the lands of the kulin nations uh, but at the moment is being recorded in our home studios with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1. Find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can also download us as a podcast wherever it is that you do get your podcasts from or you can tune in again next week when Stu, Chris and Claire get locked in science.